Good morning, church family. This is the day the Lord has made. I hope that you're rejoicing uh, and that you're glad in it. Uh, this is time for us now to turn and give our attention to God's word. And before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we pray, please speak to us now. Through your word, give life, encouragement, correction, hope, joy, guidance, wisdom, and everything else we need to live as your people. Lord, through the preaching of your word, give us vision of your greatness and give us understanding of your plan and your will for our lives, Lord. We need you. We need you. We need you. Please come and meet with us in your word. Instruct us and guide us, we pray. Our lives are yours. Use them for your glory in any way you will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. And uh, as you turn there, let me say a few words of introduction uh, for our sermon series, particularly for any who may be joining us this morning for the first time. We are in a sermon series that we call Bless the Block that we started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we're meditating on Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 9 as a kind of blueprint um, for our church family and the ministry we believe God has called us to have uh, in our context, in our neighborhood, Anacostia, Southeast D.C., Ward 8, East of the River, and so on. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, we started in the first sermon by thinking about verse 4 and thinking about there how it is that we are an exile community. We are people who live um, in, on the earth as Christians, and the entire earth is not our home. Heaven's our home. And so this is a sojourn for us. We are wanderers and pilgrims. We are aliens in the world. We are exiles. And, and not only that, but it is possible, as we thought about a couple weeks ago, to have multiple exile experiences. So not only as a Christian, uh, being elect exiles, as Peter calls us, but it could be that we are literally uh, exiles from our home country because of war or famine or turmoil uh, in that home country. And so we are immigrants or refugees in the United States in Washington, D.C. Or we could read the entire African-American experience as an exile experience. People brought here, forced into slavery for 250 years, another 100 years of Jim Crow, constantly fighting for citizenship and freedom and equality. That's a, that the best way to understand it, I think, is to understand that uh, in part as an exile experience. Or we could be living cross-culturally for the sake of the gospel, and uh, we may be a part of the majority culture, but we are living in uh, as a minority, um, voluntarily, um, in a kind of exile for the sake of the gospel. And we said that we need to embrace this experience, embrace this exile identity, and to do it, we need to do at least three things. We need to rethink our location, redefine success, and we need to ask God the where question, where he would have us to be. It's counterintuitive, but as we saw in that first sermon, exile is one of the ways God causes his people to flourish. Exile is the place where God brings us back to himself and back to security that only he can provide. He rids us of idols and, and purifies our faith as we live as sojourners and pilgrims. 
But that was all the first sermon. In the second sermon, we focus not on um, the exile, the exile person, but we focus on the exile's God. We were still looking at Jeremiah 29, verse 4, uh, but there we were trying to take a God-centered approach to that verse, and we saw three things implied in that verse about who God is to the exile. He is the still the God who speaks, he's the God who still saves, and he's the God who still sins. He speaks, he saves, and he sins. And every one of those things are meant to be encouragements to the exile and to help the exile in their pilgrimage. So, we must be guided by God's word, because that's where God speaks. And we must look to God for power and rescue, because he is the one who saves. He's the one who delivers, yes, from exile, but ultimately, he's also the one who delivers us from hell. And from all of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, he is the Lord of hosts to us, the God of, the God of Israel, the God of the church. And so, we must look to him. And then thirdly, we, we must live with a sense of being sent by God. There's a kind of sentness that ought to characterize the Christian life. We are, we are not settlers. We're not people who are just sort of squatting somewhere. We're people on a mission. We're people who are flung into the world for the glory of God, sent to places that we might not choose for ourselves in order to bear witness to God, in order to flourish and to be a means of flourishing for the surrounding community. Now, as we think about that, what an exile is and, and who God is to the exile, the next sort of question that we'll really spend our time unpacking through verses 5 to 9 over the next few weeks, uh, the next sort of major question is, well then what does God want the exile to do? What does God want the exile to do? What does he expect of us as an exile community? And as we look at Jeremiah 29, verses 5 to 9, we're going to unpack five things from that text that are kind of meat and potatoes, um, sort of central uh, activities and strategies and aims of the exile community that, that God expects of us. And each of those are going to be, each of those five things are going to be a plank in our foundation, in, in our platform as a church for how we seek to bless the block how we seek our own flourishing, and how we seek the flourishing of our neighbors and friends. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to consider the, the very first command there uh, in Jeremiah 29, verse 5, first part of verse 5. And if you're taking notes, we're going to outline our thinking in three points, in three parts. We're going to get the first command, build houses. I'm going to look at its companion, its, its companion command, live in them. And then number three, we're going to think about what that means for ARC strategy. So look with me in Jeremiah 29. I'll read verses 4 to 9, but we're going to settle in the first half of verse 5. This is God's word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Our text for this morning, verse 5, build houses and live in them. If you're looking for sort of one main point from the sermon, it, it might be this, a little bit of a pregnant sentence here. I might put it this way, that God's exile people are meant to flourish by establishing a self-sufficient, full-time living presence on the block as producers and owners. I'll give it to you again. God's exile people are meant to flourish by establishing a self-sufficient, full-time living presence on the block as producers and owners. And we're going to see this uh, in these commands here. The first thing we want to see is the, the first command, build houses. Imagine for a moment that you are a member of a conquered people. You were captured along with thousands and thousands of your people. You were chained and marched by foot far away from your homeland. The further you went, the stranger things became. You, you no longer recognized the landscape. You no longer recognized the language. Speech sounds like random syllables. There's no pattern or rhythm. The alphabet and numbers make no sense to you. Clothing is different. In this new place, you can't figure out who or what's important. The things that were important in your homeland no longer have any value. Your education, your family name, your bank account, none of it. You're always misunderstanding other people. And worse than that, they, they are always misunderstanding you. You arrive only with the clothes on your back, no money, no resources, no networks, no nothing, really. Now, if you're in that situation, what do you suppose is your first and most immediate need? There's a pretty, pretty good chance that the things that are listed in verse 5 are the things that you most need to figure out how to get food and shelter. So here, the first part of God's word speaks right to those basic immediate needs in verse 5 of food and shelter. And verse 5 begins with a focus on shelter, on housing. See the command there? Build houses. The Hebrew here is interesting. It means build houses. <laughs> it means to construct or assemble or raise an edifice. Now, it's a striking command because keep in mind, Israel has been conquered by Babylon. They have been marched to Babylon. Uh, and now God speaks to them and says, build houses, but they ain't got nothing. They don't have anything. The text says build. Notice the text does not say get a loan. The text does not say sign a mortgage. It does not say rent. Those are probably not even things that were available in that society in the ancient world. The, the word build means they are meant to assume control of the means of production for their basic needs. 
The command build implies a certain level of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. They're not looking for help from Nebuchadnezzar. They're not looking for help from Babylon city government. Much less, much less are they looking for a handout. They, they depend on God in order to do for themselves. Now, at this point, I want to do a little bit of an aside because you might be hearing me now with the political categories of this world. And what I really want you to hear is the Bible, not the world. Let's not get it twisted. What I'm saying may sound like politically conservative ideals as we understand them today. But... So you don't misunderstand, let me make two things clear. I want you to understand this in biblical terms rather than, again, worldly political categories. First, this command, according to verse 4, does not come to the individual, but notice in verse 4, to all the exiles. In other words, this is not rugged individualism, but community self-sufficiency. Rugged individualism and community self-sufficiency may sound a lot alike in their emphasis on um, self-reliance, but they are two very different things. Second, this emphasis on community self-sufficiency does not let Babylon off the hook for its wrongs against Israel. Keep your finger in Jeremiah 29. Look back with me. Jeremiah 25, verses 12 to 14. The word of the Lord says this, then after 70 years, that's when their exile is going to be over. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it. Everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves, even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. You see what God is saying. In two generations, roughly 70 years, he's going to call all of Babylon, all of the Chaldeans, to account for their sins against Israel, for their sin in enslaving Israel. So, in emphasizing to his people that they have a community responsibility for self-sufficiency, God is not then thereby letting off the hook, making unaccountable um, the sinful nation that has oppressed them. So, this command assumes a certain kind of self-reliance, but it does not in any way obviate the demands of justice and accountability before God. Those are kind of the poles that the exile community lives and acts in. Now, back to this notion of build. We often think of exiles as, as homeless simply because they are not in their homeland. But a homeland and a home are two different things. You can be outside your homeland and still have a home. God commands exiles to, to build homes and live in them, even though they are captives in a foreign place. The circumstances work against their flourishing, but the exile community must work for flourishing. God's people must, 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 not, must be about construction despite any constriction they face in their circumstances. So our, our, our attitude as exiles must, must be, they constrict our way, 
but we must construct our way. And built into this command is a certain kind of resilience. Built into this command to build is the assumption of a God-given resilience and defiance of oppressive realities. We mentioned this in the first sermon, but it, it bears repeating. You have to read a text like this with a kind of HGTV imagination. We got to be like those folks who flip homes. We got to have a builder's mentality. We got to be the people who, who look at the ruins and imagine renewal. Now that's, that's the exile's outlook. And that first command is that we should be builders. We should be producers of homes. Now, what do we do with those houses? Well, that's what comes to the second command in verse 4, the second half of that sentence, and live in them. Excuse me, verse 5, and live in them. The word live is powerful. It's connected to the idea of life, of flourishing and growth. These homes are to be the exile's primary place of residence. They are to be places of, of vitality and, and richness and all the things that go on in life. The command to live in these houses has several implications. Number one, they are not to postpone settling down. They're in the land of exile, but they've, they've got to settle down there. You can't live out of a suitcase for 70 years. Number two, they're not to be absentee landlords. This is not an investment property, but a residence. Live in them, the text says. They are supposed to live on the block, if we're using the language that we use at ARC. Number three, as exiles, they are to root their residential and social lives in the community of exile. So exile is not the same as hiding from society. You still must live outwardly and publicly and residentially. And number four, uh, this, this implies that God intends to meet their needs while they're in exile. Build houses and live in them. God is with you. God is going to supply for you. And sometimes we struggle with our exile because, uh, number one, we refuse to settle down and to be content where we are. We're restless, always imagining that there's some place else that's better than where we are. But number two, we struggle with exile because sometimes we live in one place physically. Our house is in one place physically, um, but our life socially and spiritually and emotionally is in some other place. So we live in neighborhood A, but all of our work life and our play life and everything else is over in neighborhood C or F or G. Well, this here actually calls for a kind of integration of, of life and work and play in the same neighborhood, in the same place of exile. And number three, we struggle to accept our exile because sometimes we're really struggling with unbelief. We don't think God will meet our needs in places that we don't want to be in. We've almost defined it that way, that if that's not where I want to be, God must not be over there. I love the, the title of Jonathan, Books, Jonathan Brooks's uh, book, Church Forsaken. And, it, and he, he makes the point in the book that there are no God forsaken places. God is omnipresent. They're only church-forsaken places. They're only places where churches and Christians refuse to go. But God is there. 
right? And so we must, we must challenge our unbelief with the recognition that actually often God means to bless us and God means to cause us to grow and to flourish precisely in the places that left to ourselves we would rather not be in. And those places of exile are places of blessing. And when we refuse to settle down, when we sort of have our lives split up, living in one neighborhood, playing in another, when we're living basically in unbelief, even though we look respectable and well put together spiritually, guess what we will do? We will run from exile. We will flee from it. And in fleeing from it, we'll be running from God and running from God's place of blessing. So, if we're going to build houses and live in them, that means we're going to put down roots there. We're going to get our social lives in that space, and we're going to trust God and believe in God uh, as we do that. Now, it's a question we ought to ask ourselves here. These folks are exiles. We are exiles, right? So this is not our, our permanent home. So the question becomes, is there anything unique about being an exile when it comes to building houses and living in them? Is there an exile way? of building homes and living in them. I think so. I can think of four things that I would, I would offer you as um, unique things about building houses and living in them as an exile community. Number one is this. Exiles build houses primarily as a need rather than a financial investment. These are not beach homes. And these are not investment properties. These are homes that are meant to be lived in. These are homes that are meant to be used for our, um, our everyday actual lives. And so um, that's how we must think about our homes. Number two, exiles build houses as a place to live, but, but not as a permanent home. All of our homes in this world are temporary. All of them. So the exile can't set their hearts on always being in Babylon. To see that, consider Jeremiah 29, jump down to verse 10. Where God says there, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place, meaning back to Jerusalem. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So their exile condition is a temporary condition. It's just like us. Our exile on the earth is temporary. God is going to bring us home, not to a, a place in the Middle East, but he's going to bring us home to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that's been prepared for us and promised to us. So, so our homes are not permanent homes. They're temporary. Number three, exiles build houses and live in them, live in their homes as if it's not theirs. That's kind of the New Testament ethic of 1 Corinthians 7, 29 and 31. And Paul says there we're to do things, we're to live as, as married as though not married, right? By implication uh, and, and application, we say the same thing about homes. We're to live as if we own homes, but, but we don't own them. We're not owned by them. We're not bound to them in wrong, unhelpful ways. But there is a kind of freedom that we enjoy. Even as, we, even as we are late possession to certain things. And then number four, exiles use their homes to meet the needs of fellow church members, fellow exiles. I'm thinking there, of course, of Acts chapter 2, 
um, verses 42 to 47, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 36. You remember when revival breaks out in the New Testament church and the, the apostles are preaching the word, people are being saved by the thousands. And you remember the Bible says there that they had all things in common. And in Acts chapter 4, there were people who came and uh, sold houses and lands and put the proceeds at the apostles' feet and, 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 and the proceeds were distributed so that everyone had their needs met. Well, I think there's something pretty exilic about that. That a community who depends solely on God and on each other will be a kind of community that, that looks to meet the needs of one another. And so we would, we would own our homes in a way that, 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 that we steward them to bless the body, to bless the church, and to bless the community. So in saying all of that, part of what I'm saying is, is that Jeremiah 29 is not, is not, is not an encouragement to pursue the American dream. So this is not biblical language baptizing American civil religion. This is not biblical language baptizing American mythology about a white house, a picket fence, two and a half kids, cul-de-sac, lot, drive-in, um, um, a garage. You never have contact with your neighbors. That's not what this text is about. This text is about the flourishing of God's people and the means of that flourishing being a kind of self-sufficient, um, productive um, meeting of our most important needs, the needs of the community, and that flowing over into meeting the needs of our neighbors. We are to build houses and live in them. That's strategy one for blessing the block. Well, how are we going to apply this at ARC? How does this come home for us? What's our context? We don't live in ancient Babylon. We live in modern Babylon. We live in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so what, what's the data? What's the outlook here in Washington, D.C.? Uh, as of 2016, Washington, D.C. had the highest per capita rate of homelessness uh, in the entire country. D.C.'s homeless population between 2009 and 2016 increased by 34%. Housing insecurity is worsened by the wide income disparity that exists in our city by race and by ward. Let me, let me give you the data. The median income for whites is $160,000 per year. I know there's some of y'all out there like, well, that, that ain't me. <laughs> That's the median. That is, if you take all the incomes of, of, of white neighbors in Washington, D.C. and pick the sort of middle income, the one that's exactly in the middle, the, the figure you would get there is $160,000 a year. Now, compare that to the median income for African Americans in the city. It's a little over $48,000. That's less than a third of the median income of our white neighbors. You see that uh, in table number one there. If you look to the far right column, you'll see there uh, 2017, and you've got the mean, the average, and the median income for black and Hispanic white uh, residents of Washington, D.C. The disparity is huge. Income disparities exist not just by race, but also across the wards, which is, again, another reflection of racial disparity, but also of class disparity. So the next graph compares income change in the eight wards of Washington by taking 2008 to 2012 
and comparing it to the rate of change 2013 to 2017, notice uh, in the second graph that the median income for wards 7 and 8 have not really moved since 2008, while the income in every other ward of the city has grown significantly, at least by $20,000 um, over those periods in, in most every other ward. Well, what does this mean? Well, this means that the people and the area of our exile, of our mission field here in Southeast Washington, D.C., in Ward 8, are not participating in the economic opportunities that the rest of the city enjoys. We live in an opportunity desert. Um, we, we live in an area of the city that is largely neglected and left behind uh, by, the, by the wider economic engine of the city. And beloved, this is why we're here. We are here in the neighborhood on purpose, by God's sending, uh, because God cares for the least, the lost, and the left behind, and God's people ought to as well. And, and one way we aid the flourishing of our neighbors in a context like this is by becoming neighbors, living here, planting our lives here, and bringing resources with us that are shared with the rest of the community. Now, the flat incomes in our neighborhoods results also in another problem. You'll see it in the third graph here, and that is the problem of rent burden. What does that mean? Our neighborhood is about 70% renters, 60% renters. Uh, what is rent burden? Well, well, you are rent burdened when you pay more than 30% of your income uh, in uh, housing costs, in rental, in rental costs. And notice there you see it by ward, the left column, you got the eight wards um, down, the, down the side there. And then you see the comparisons, the change in rent burden from 2008 to 2012 compared to 2013, 2017. Look at that bottom, that bottom row, that's ward eight. See how the rent burden on households in ward eight, um, the number of households has gone from about 55% to about 63, 64% of households in our neighborhood experiencing rent burden. Why is that? Well, it's because incomes have gone up in all the rest of the city, and with those incomes have gone up housing costs, rental costs, and all that good stuff. But in Ward 8, incomes have not gone up, but housing costs have. And so we're getting this increase in rent burden. Very simply, what that means is people can't afford to live where they live. Financially distressed. And the challenges are not shrinking. The challenges are growing. Washington, D.C. is uh, leads the nation, leads the country uh, in, in having the highest percentage of gentrifying neighborhoods uh, in the country between 2000 and 2013. Some 20,000 African-American residents displaced from their homes in that period. In D.C., the, the fair market rental rate for a two-bedroom apartment in Washington, D.C. is about $1,700, just under $1,800 a month. But you can't find a, a decent two-bedroom apartment in Washington, D.C. for $1,800 a month. According to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, to afford the fair market rate of $1,800 a month, which really does not exist, would require working full-time for 52 weeks, earning $34.48 an hour. That's an annual salary of $71,000 a year, but we've already seen the median income in our section of the city is about half that. If you make minimum wage of around $13, $14 an hour, whatever it is right now, 
it will take you 104 hours of work per week to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment at the fair market rental rate, which again, does not really even exist. You have to work full-time, two minimum wage jobs, 52 hours a week, no vacation, no days off, to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Meanwhile, public housing stock has decreased by 4,000 units since the 1990s. We're in a situation where we have about 8,000 total public housing units available, but we have people who qualify for public housing at, at, at the number of 140,000. Got 140,000 people in the city out of 700,000 living at or below the poverty level, and they're vying for 8,000 units total of public housing. It's a real crisis. Between 2002 and 2012, the number of low-cost rental units in Washington, D.C., get this, dropped by more than 50%, while the number of expensive units rose by 155%. So, so um, you know, two times as many, three times as many expensive units have come onto the market. Meanwhile, we've cut in half the number of inexpensive units. Squatters is kept in some quarters. D.C. is experiencing a tremendous housing crisis. And the people who are feeling it the most are the exiles in the city. The neighborhoods of the city that are thought to be undesirable, uh, except by speculators and property flippers. That's the picture. The question becomes, what are we going to do? What's ARC going to do? What's our ministry and mission and witness look like on this answer? And the answer for us comes out of the Bible from a place like Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. That's the attitude and the ethic of the New Testament Christian. That's the exile's attitude. As long as God gives us opportunity, we're going to try and find ways to do good for everyone. We're going to pay particular attention to the household of faith, but we're going to do good to everyone. In other words, we're going to seek our own flourishing as a church. We're going to build houses and live in them, and we're going to seek the flourishing of the city. Well, what does that look like? What do we need to do? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to organize ourselves. God's given us this pandemic to, to make us slow down and stop and think. And one of the things that we should be thinking about as a church is, given what we know now, given what we've experienced over the last five years as a church, knowing, knowing what we know now, how is life and ministry going to take shape when we resume sort of um, life without pandemic restrictions and we resume living out and about full time in the community? We need to use this time that we have, which is slower and hopefully allows for more reflection to reflect and plan and pray and prepare for that time when we're able to sort of move back out uh, without, without restriction. So we need to organize ourselves. And we need to think about our approach. I think it's going to require a different mentality, not just from a pragmatic perspective, but an altogether different mentality driving how we organize and how we build. Remember, that word build implies self-sufficiency. And for us to approach housing and living in them from the perspective of self-sufficiency, from the perspective of controlling the means of production, um, we've got to change the game. Many of you know this well-known quote from Audre Lorde. It says, The master's tools 
will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. If, if Lord is right, and I, I think there's a lot that's right about this, then the kind of flourishing we need cannot come about by simple participation in the economy the way it's rigged. We're not going to flourish the way we are uh, through capitalistic consumerism, through individualism and materialism. It, it won't come by participating in the debt economy and by mortgaging our futures to credit card companies uh, and even uh, mortgage companies. We've got to change the game. We've got to figure out how to change the game. And, and here's what I would love, love to see at ARC. I would love to see the creation for each of the five things we're going to consider in Jeremiah 29, 5 and 9. For each of those five things, starting with build houses and live in them, a, what, what I might call a PS18, a prayer, study, and act team. This will be a, a team of members of a church who are dedicated to prayer, because we're commanded to pray about all things and we depend upon God's power to study because there's a lot we need to learn and know and share uh, about these issues that we don't already know. Um, so they're going to study and then act. Act on plans that seek to um, promote flourishing in the church and flourishing on the block so that our presence here is a blessing to the block. The, the housing PSA team would, would have this charge to find a way to maximize home ownership for church members and in the community through self-sufficient means. Remember that word build assumes a certain level of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And, and I'm arguing here that the highest form of home ownership, home production, the highest form is not merely in participating in the traditional channels of debt, but finding a way that we can actually own homes and build homes with as little debt as possible in self-sufficient means. Can we control production? and satisfy our housing needs? That's the big question. And that, that team would, would read books together like The Color of Law. That team would host forums and panels and other kinds of things that are meant to sort of raise the, the IQ of the church and the community on these issues. And that team would do all those things with an aim toward crafting strategy, crafting activities and proposals that, that aim at self-sufficient housing construction and living on the block full-time by more and more of the church and by more and more of the community. Here's the thing. You can't gentrify a neighborhood that people own. We have not been owners enough. And even when we have been owners, there have been policy things and other actions that have actually defrauded um, black communities of their homes, of their property, uh, and so on. So we got to be ready to promote ownership and self-sufficiency and defend what we own as a Christian people uh, and as, a, as an exile people with multiple exile experiences. So what does that mean? Do we need to form a CDC, Community Development Corporation? Do we need to buy property to preserve it for low-income renters? 
Do we need to develop our own home building program, our own home buying program or co-op for ARC members? Do we need to create resource and referral strategies to, to make sure people take advantage of what's out there? Do we, do we need to join the advocacy efforts of other organizations, existing organizations working on these things and maybe at some point add some things to what others are already doing? You guys responded to this the last time we talked about this and I think it's a good thing for us to keep thinking about. Should we build a church building or buy a church building that we only occupy for a few hours a week? Or, or should we build a, 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 an apartment building or a, a co-op for building homes? How are we going to steward what we do have? Because frankly, we have more than Israel had when they went into Babylon. How are we going to steward what we do have to be a community of self-sufficient producers? who build houses and live in them full-time on the block for the blessing of the block and the blessing of God's people. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray about where your passion lies. We're going to think about some other areas of activity. We've started with housing today. I want you to ask the Lord to burden you like you have never been burdened before for an area in which you can apply your faith and represent Jesus and the Scripture for the flourishing of the church and for the flourishing of the community. Then I want you to ask the Lord to give you grace to, to pray, to study, and to act consistently and faithfully toward the objectives of that area. So, we need to organize for the work. The PSA teams, but there are also some other competencies that we've got to build beneath that that, that make that work more fruitful. So for example, we, we wanna um, sort of encourage as many people as possible to live in the community, to live on the block. And uh, we need to sort of acquaint you with the community if you're new to the community or uh, create um, relationships with neighbors if you've been here for a while, but we want more and more people living life in our exile, in our area of mission. Uh, number two, we want to get everyone involved in the community. So we need to rethink how we're doing block groups or rethink how we're doing small groups. Maybe we need to convert them all to block groups. And in having enough block groups, we need to assign every member to a block group. Uh, and have the expectation that every member will participate in a block group um, at, at least on sort of a, a monthly basis because at least on a monthly basis we need our block groups to in some way be present in the community and serving. We've had wonderful examples of this. Um, the Ridge Place block group had a, a cleanup on their block as an example. Uh, we, we, could, we could cooperate in our block groups to hold back to school drives, all kinds of things. But we want to begin to think about how do we strategically get people more of their social life into the community and create ways for uh, us to organize service to the community. Block groups would be one of them. Number three, we have to grow in our ability to understand and engage the multiple ways that we have exile experiences. For example, we have to be comfortable with and have confidence in addressing the kinds of racial disparities we've been using as illustrations in this sermon. Uh, to grow in this way, we need discipleship. And so we're going to begin when we're able to resume publicly, as you heard me say before, we're going to begin with Be the Bridge studies that we're going to push everybody to be involved in. Um, and then we're going to 
move on from beta bridge studies to doing some of the other things I just mentioned a moment ago, workshops, panels, other things, so that we are growing our ability to talk to each other, about each other, about the issues that we confront, about the multiple ways we feel like exiles, and then we're going to grow empathy and understanding by God's grace, and, and, and that is going to grow in us the competency uh, to be able to engage these issues as a family and abroad. You've heard me say it a million times, but we want to be the congregation that can have the conversation. We want the competencies of listening and empathy and talking and sharing and unifying so that we can move out uh, in concerted action. Well, we should land this plane. God has given his exiled people a, a huge task, a God-sized task. We must build houses and live in them. That's, that's when we will flourish. And, and we must uh, pray, study, and act to pursue this kind of flourishing. And the really good news is this. You hear this, particularly if you're not yet a Christian. And I want you to hear this if you are a Christian. The really good news is this. God himself is building a house. Jesus says in John 14, I go, away, I go away to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he says, I want to come back and receive you into this house that, that God has built. Indeed, we are God's household as his people. So between now and Jesus' second return, God is living in us and working in us uh, and preserving us until that day when he brings us to the new Jerusalem and brings us to our heavenly home. But you, you don't have that hope if you don't have Jesus. All the building that you would do would be in vain. It, it would ultimately be for nothing. It might be pleasant during this life, but in the life to come, if you die without Jesus... It's only going to be suffering. It's only going to be God's judgment. And God has sent His Son into the world to help you escape that judgment. In fact, to, to be the one who rescues you from that judgment. And He does that by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the grave three days later to defeat the grave, to defeat sin, to defeat the judgment that you and I deserve. And God's promise is this. Everyone who believes in Him will be saved from judgment, will be saved from hell, will be saved from God's wrath. And everyone who believes in him will be adopted into God's family. And guess where their home will be? When their exile is over, their home will be with God in glory. That's what God offers you this, this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, receive that offer. Confess your sin to God. Turn away from your sin. Quit, quit practicing those things. Turn toward God. Walk away from sin. Walk toward God with faith in Him that what He promised to forgive you, to save you from judgment, to adopt you as His child, and to bring you into His family, all of that is true and accomplished through what Jesus has done. Put your faith in that and put your faith in Jesus and follow Jesus as your Lord and you will be saved. And Christian, as we do the things that God has called us to do here on earth, let us hold fast to this hope that we have, that, that earth is not our home, heaven is. This exile is real, but it's temporary. And it's really preparing us for that great homecoming. Christ is coming soon to gather his bride. Be ready, be working when he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to be the exiled people that you have called us to be. You give us grace to bless the block, uh, 
to flourish in your grace and in all that you have called us to. Help us to take this ancient word and through Jesus apply it to our contemporary life. And help us, O oh Lord, to honor you in how we serve and how we love. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.